0: Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcastpoliticology.com at or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Welcome back. I'm your host, Ron Steslow. In our first episode, you heard from most of the Lincoln Project co-founders, with one notable exception, Jennifer Horn. I'm excited that we'll get to hear from Jennifer today about her time as the chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party. We also talk about why she decided to help build the Lincoln Project, about holding conservative values and deciding to vote against Donald Trump and for Joe Biden, being attacked by the president on Twitter, and her personal experiences of dealing with the devastating consequences of Trump's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time today. I'm really happy to be here. Could you start by sharing with our listeners about your background, and how you got into Republican politics, and your long career in, in this world?
1: <laughs> you sound like you're trying to age me, Ron.
0: <laughs> Such a long...
1: <laughs> <laughs> career. I just want to say, some of the other founders of the project have had much longer it's, careers in politics. <laughs> it's true. Um, you know what? It's interesting because I actually did not get involved in politics until I was about forty-four years old. Um, I don't come from a political family. I didn't have any really po- real political background. Um, I spent the first twelve or fifteen years after I got married as a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I have, you know, my husband and I have five kids together. And, um, uh, it was, you know, after my kids kind of were all in school and all having, you know, it, leaving me with more, more time in my day, um, I got back into writing, you know, my, my college, uh, studies were in communications and I was, I had a column for, uh, the Nashua Telegraph. I had a weekly column there. and I started, uh, into radio where I was, um, hosting a, a talk a, a local talk radio about you know politics and community and things like that. And uh, in uh, 2008, I decided, not exactly out of the blue, but certainly um, a, a huge, like a giant leap out of my comfort zone, I decided to run for Congress. And it was because I had spent the last two years on the radio following current events, interviewing people, From when the Democrats had taken over the House in two thousand and six, and you know they saw this as their opportunity, which I I have to say I I understand that world much better today than I did when I was kind of jumping into it then. But they had this opportunity to kind of try to reshape the House, and I was in disagreement over a lot of it. Um, But my bigger concern at the time was that we had kind of we were falling into this mentality of of um you know politics as usual like oh this is just the way it is this is this is the democrats are in charge they're gonna do their thing someday the republicans will beat them they're gonna come back and do their thing and and I just really had this strong sense at that moment that I wanted to make a difference that I want I that I and I really believe and I this is so important because the farther into politics you get you kind of stop talking about what it is that brought you in to begin with sometimes. And I think it's important for all of us to kind of You know, revisit that sometimes and remember what it was. That I really believe that one person can make a difference. That one voice being loud and clear and strong um, can not only change the trajectory of something. But also, you know, can inspire others to stand up and become involved, and to add their voices to it, and for them to, you know, join the join the group. And the group turns into a crowd, you know, and the crowd turns into millions of people, and um, and so that was that was kind of my my goal at that time was I just wanted to add my voice to what was happening in the world. I made a couple of promises to myself in two thousand and eight when I made this decision, Um, and the most important one was that. Whatever I did from that point forward, having anything to do with politics, I would never say or do anything that I could not come home to the dinner table and explain or defend to my children. Mm. And I don't think I ever have. I've really been conscious of that um, you know, through, in all the years since. And, um, and, and so that was, that's what got me involved. Now, I became our party's nominee that year for the second congressional district in New Hampshire. Um, Barack Obama won the White House that year.
0: I did you not were, win. <laughs> you were the first woman to ever receive the Republican nomination in New Hampshire. Is that correct? I was. I was the first Republican woman nominated to federal office. Wow.
1: And um, it didn't really understand at the time. You know, the, the, my focus was so much outside of anything to do with whether or not I was a man or a woman or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as as I have continued on in Republican politics, um, I have come to under, you know, kind of understand and respect uh, more how, how important that is. Yeah. Um, I do think, I, I, I'm of two minds. I don't want a woman for the job any more than I want a man for the job. I want somebody who's qualified, intelligent, compassionate, um, understanding. You know, I can go through all the all the qualifications mm-hmm. that I want for somebody uh, in any given elected position. Um, but it is, I do... It it is ridiculous. It's embarrassing. I can't figure out why we have so few elected Republican women. Because if you look at the House and Senate today, we have fewer today than we've had in the past. You know, it's not. Um, uh, it it is a failure of our party that we that we lack diversity, whether it's women, LGBTQ community, um, people of color. Uh, you know, you kind of go through the whole long list. And and but we should be able to um, achieve greater diversity without going out, out there and saying, okay, I want a black person, a woman, and a gay person. You guys all get online and, and run. Like mm-hmm. we shouldn't have to say that. We should naturally be open and embracing all of these, all of all of the the people that make up our community, that make up our country.
0: Yeah.
1: It should be a natural prog- pro, you know pr- process. And it hasn't happened, and and that is a failure on the part of our party.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I talked with Tara Setmeyer about was the autopsy report in two thousand twelve, mm-hmm. where exactly the, which you're be familiar with, which which spoke to exactly what you are um, right. what you're talking about, which was the need for the party to reach out to minority groups and include them uh, your- proactively, and 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 maybe maybe that I, I'd like to pivot to why you helped create the Lincoln project and I I I assume that had something to do with it. Well sure. The um you know even before that, the
1: the you know the the document you're talking about um it came out of the RNC, right? The National mm-hmm. Leadership Organization of the Republican Party um came up with this evaluation of why things went so horribly awry in 2012 when they were expecting that it to go in a different direction, that should be clear too. And so it had a lot to do with digital and, um, you know, uh, messaging and all sorts of things, but it it, it really focused significantly on the homogenous nature of the party. And, um, and Tara's right, you know, I'm sure in, in, in her analysis of it, but what I found so interesting about that was that they went through, that that report went through and laid out very clearly step by step by step here's what we're doing wrong here's what we need to do to be successful and this is what the american people are looking for in 2016 we did exactly the opposite mm. on every single step mm-hmm. i became chairman of the new hampshire republican party in 2013 and i served for 4 years two terms until so it was january of 2013 through january of 2017 so i was there through the whole donald trump thing oh and it was insane behind the scenes the conversations that we were having at the RNC about what's happening what are we doing how do we get control of this you know what just you know all these things and it was exactly the opposite of what we knew we needed to do or what we knew we needed to be in order to have any sort of longevity in our, you know, influence or effectiveness, because there was nobody at the RNC, and some of them are still there today. I don't care what they say in front of the camera. They were, you know, I was there. They said it to me. There is nobody at the RNC today who believes that Donald Trump is creating longevity of influence for the Republican Party right now in the way that he is conducting himself. Um, So, and, and, and-
0: is there a moment that stands out to you from that time? Can you take us behind the curtain and is there, is there well, one? You need? know
1: what? There are a couple, there are a couple for me. Um, I spent that whole cycle speaking up against Donald Trump when I felt like I had to as chairman, I, you know, you have an obligation to remain neutral in a primary, mm-hmm. but I also felt like my responsibility as chairman was to, um, was to articulate and preserve the principles of the of republicanism. So any t- and any time and I I did not take sides. I didn't and and I you know, I feel strongly about this. I didn't endorse anybody. I didn't say you should vote for this guy instead of this guy. But any time that I was confronted with having to choose between defending Donald Trump or defending the principles of my party, I chose the principles every time, mm-hmm. which made me not a big not not one of Donald Trump's favorite people. Um, but I would say there are two two moments that really kind of stand out for me from that. Um, one was when Reince, who was RNC chair at the time, Reince Priebus Reince, was in Reince. town. He and I were doing a bunch of stuff together, and we were in the back seat of the car. It was in the fall of that uh, of the general election. I don't remember exactly when it took place, but just talking between us about what an absolute horror this had all turned into, and what the consequences would be for the party going forward. And, um, Reince did not believe that there was any chance at all that we would win the White House. And this was just a few weeks out from the, the elect, from election day. And I can remember him saying to me very, you know, very specifically his line was, you know, when this is all over, we need to bury it in the backyard and just walk away from it and never think of it, and never think of it again. Wow. And and I can remember at the time thinking, yeah, it'd be good if, if, if we could, <laughs> but I don't think you get to do that, you yeah. know? And, and I just thought, but, it, but that's kind of, to me, like that just really speaks to, that's how everyone at the RNC felt. No one believed it was going to happen and yeah. nobody, none of them really wanted it to happen. Like no one ever said, I want him to lose, um, straight out, but nobody really wanted to have to take on the responsibility of Donald Trump winning as a Republican nominee. And then the and, other and thing,
0: Priebus, just so, for, for, so everyone remembers for the record, yeah went on to become, I think it was Donald Trump's first chief his of staff. His first
1: chief of staff. He went on yeah. to become his first chief of staff. And when yeah. that happened, I was actually encouraged because I knew Reince to be a really good person. I still know Reince to be a very good person, um, a, a sincere, um, compassionate man who wants good in the world. There, you know, no, uh, I don't ascribe to this idea that everybody who went into the White House to try to help Donald Trump is automatically evil. Um, I I think you, you know, I think Reitz and some of the people he brought with him want, went in there and wanted to try to get things under control. They wanted to be part of, you know, pre, you know making this as successful for our country as possible. Um, but the other moment that stands out that was mo- even more impactful for me was, I believe it was after the Billy Bush tape came out. Mm. And um, there were some folks on Trump's New Hampshire team that I had been uh, friends with and had worked with on many political effort over the past, over the previous 10 years, people that I respected that I liked. Um, and one of them was, you know, one of the top dogs on his team. And, um, he called me, I was in the car driving with my husband to some political something. I don't know if it was, you know, a rally or a, a phone bank, whatever it was. And he called and he said, look, um, you know, I, I heard from your guys, you know, that, that you're going to say something." And I said, yeah, I'm going to say something of, you know, of course this, I, I have to say something. And, um, he's like, you don't have to say anything. He said "Like our, our teams are finally working well together. Cause you can imagine there was some tension between the guys mm-hmm. that worked for me and the guys that worked for Trump. And, mm-hmm. um, he said, our teams are working really good together. We're almost done with this. We're, you know, it's almost, we're, we're going to be able to put it behind us soon. He's like, just don't say anything. And I said, I can't just not say anything like Th- think about that. Think about what that tape said and what that, you know, what was, ha- you know, how horrible that was. I said, I can't just not say anything. And I said to him, I promised myself a long time ago that I would never say or do anything I could not defend to my children. I have to say something. And his answer from this guy that I had liked and respected all these years and had worked with, who had helped me get elected chairman, in just the most derisive tone, saying, Oh come on! You're going to give me that line like it's about your kids, and and for me, like for me, that was I was like, all right, done, check. I now I know, right? Tells you all you need to know. That's that's all I need to know. So, and and that and and so that has really you know that shaped that that promise to myself shaped everything I ever said or did in politics. It continues to today, and I have learned now that it also gave me a good filter. To understand other people in politics, for good or for bad.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the Lincoln Project now. Because all all eight of us have our own stories, our own backgrounds, and we're all on different journeys. But those journeys have intersected at this project. And they may depart once this is over. We have a singular mission to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism. In November, so I wonder if you can talk about what brought you to the Lincoln Project, what your reasons are for helping create it, given everything that you've been through in Republican politics.
1: Sure. The um, you know it is interesting because when other people have asked me about this, I, I've given very similar answers to what you just laid out. We we were all on these parallel paths. You know, we all we were all equally committed to making sure that Donald Trump does not get elected to president again taking our own approach or you know maybe involved in different groups different efforts our op-eds all that sort of thing and the Lincoln project is where we all came together and you know we all kind of merged into one lane and um and 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 all i can say is like i, I look at what we've been able to accomplish in the last since our, since december mm-hmm. and it's astounding you know none of us are yeah. so um egotistical that we look at this and say oh yeah we knew we were going to no, yeah. we knew this was going to happen. It's a complete I mean, surprise remem- to everyone, right? Yeah. But, but including <laughs> ourselves, we have exceeded our own expectations, and so you know, it it was one of the, you know the first time. I guess for me, you know, why now? You know, how did we end up you know, end up here, and what what brought me here? The first time that I ever publicly spoke against Donald Trump as a leader uh, or an elected member of our party was actually in April of two thousand and eleven. Donald Trump came to New Hampshire to test the waters for the 2012 cycle. He came to New Hampshire for one event, one small, very controlled event. I I think it was, I don't know if he ever left the airport. It might've been over there. (laughs) Um, and and i wrote an op-ed to be that was published in the union leader the day that he was in town and and i laid out the case for why not donald trump then now that was before i was chairman wow. before yeah. anybody i mean i had already you know run for congress and been the nominee and i was involved in other types of act, of activist activities and and i can remember one line in that very clearly saying if the republicans republican party takes him seriously they deserve what they get and i go back and reread that now and there is not a single every single line of that op-ed has come to fruition, has wow. turned out to be true. I made no predictions there that were overblown or outrageous. They've all happened, and and so that's how far back it goes for me, specifically about Donald mm. Trump. Mm. And um, I think for all of us, probably all eight of us, we've we've been part of and been watching for three and a half years. You know, tr- constant every day asking ourselves what's going to take him down? Like what, what else could he possibly say or do that would be incompetent or horrible? And still nobody seems to care. His numbers are, you know, right where they, uh, you know, right where you want him to be for reelection. He, um, you know, his, his supporters are never going to leave him. Like, oh my God, are we going to be, you know, stuck with this guy forever? And, um, and so I, I think, you know, and then, I don't know if you you realize this or not. Uh, briefly last year, from about February until June, in different capacities, I was also involved in Bill Weld's efforts. Yeah, so, I remember
0: we, trying, we talked yeah, during that campaign. That's right. Okay.
1: That's, yeah. right yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's right. And and so so that's part of of you know when when uh, the guys from you know who were putting the link and when John and and Reed reached out to me, I had already been through that and left that. And, um, so for me, I was, I was, you know, sort of a, an an understanding that nobody else is going to do it. I like, I keep waiting for somebody to do something. Nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else is doing anything effective. Nobody else is going to, um, you know, nobody else has figured this out. So yeah, if you guys are doing something and you want me to be part of it, I'm in.
0: Yeah. What do you think is so significant about this moment that we're in, in 2020? uh, that, that why, why do you think the Lincoln project is so important now versus the, you know, the, the, because you've been at this for quite a while, right. And, but we've already uh,
1: established that, that, right. I'm very, very old. I've been around
0: forever. I mean, (laughs) I mean, at this in terms of criticizing Donald Trump all the way back to 2011. Right. Right. And so what is so significant about right now? Why the Lincoln project right now?
1: Right. Well, it's really interesting to me. You know, we launched in December of last year, yeah. and um, at that time period, the, the whole um, you know the the whole um, um, impeachment thing was coming to a head, and a lot of folks asked us at that time. So, this you guys want to get him impeached? Is this an effort to make sure he gets impeached? And our answer was always no. Uh, do we think he should be impeached? Yeah, but we're here to defeat him at the ballot box because. Uh, I mean, who, who, who really believed that the the Republicans were going to defeat Donald Trump. So, and we always said our mission is to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. And what has unfolded since that time, first with the pandemic and then with the racial unrest across the country. I mean, who would ever have guessed in December of last year that anything could happen that would be um that would show Donald Trump to be more incompetent, more yeah. weak, more yeah. egotistical, more narcissistic, more dangerous, more ignorant, more you know and and so i look at it in this moment right now and i and i re- and what i what i understand and what i hope desperately that people across the country understand is that this election is going to shape the world that our grandchildren raised their families in. Mm-hmm. It it is that it is going to be that influential and for generations beyond that that it is so critical that the american people send a loud clear message that is just undeniable irrefutable that it is such an overwhelming defeat of Donald Trump. That the world, and more importantly, that history, know that we came together and rejected the very idea of an American president building a re-election campaign on, ra- <clears throat> on racism, excuse me. That, that they know that the American people came together and rejected the idea of an American president basing a re-election campaign on racism. It has to happen now. Uh-huh. And people, you know, ask about it and they talk about it all the time. Do you really think it will happen? Do you think we can defeat him? It's happening. Exactly. Of of course we can defeat him. Of course we can. But Ron, only if everybody puts aside their partisan differences their, um, social and community disagreements. Mm -hmm. Um, you have you, this is just for this one moment. We all have to stand together. We have to understand that my voice makes a difference. Your voice makes a difference. CJ's voice makes a difference. Every voice has to be heard. Um, and, and this is the moment when that has to happen for the preservation of the Republic and to preserve the kind of world that you want future generations of your family to grow up in.
0: So Jennifer, on May 5th of this year, which was shortly after the Lincoln Project released our Morning in America ad, which went viral and struck a nerve with a lot of Americans because it was true. There's one American whose nerves it struck who lives in the White House. and. Shortly after that ad, after he watched it, he lashed out at uh the Lincoln Project and several of our founders, including you and uh and I wonder if you could talk about what it what it's like to be attacked to na- to be name checked by the President of the United States on Twitter
1: yeah, that was bizarre <laughs> at best, you know um normally i was I am in bed and asleep at that time it was. Just completely coincidental that I was up and and writing, you know, I was working on my computer. So when it happened, somebody, I can't even remember who, somebody reached out to me right away to say, hey, do you see what the, the president just, just said? So I kind of, you know, saw it in real time. And um, it is at best bizarre. Uh, I, a lot of folks say hey it 's a badge of honor. You should print that tweet out and frame it on your wall and and things like that I really don't want i i don't embrace it that way because I think when the president attacks whether he 's attacking me or you or or any when he personally attacks somebody on twitter um other than maybe Vladimir Putin, we don't know what it's like for the president to attack Vladimir Putin. He doesn't do that, right? He's not on his list. But when he's out there attacking average Americans by name on Twitter, um, that's incredibly bad for America. That is so bad for our country. It is destructive. It's divisive. Um, it, it eats away at the, at the, um, at the foundation of what the presidency is and what the presidency, the presidency is supposed to be. So, um, while we all kind of joked about it amongst ourselves, I, I don't, th- I really don't think it's funny. And, um, I don't think it's funny when he attacks, uh, women for their appearance. I don't think it's a funny, funny when he attacks Gold Star families. I don't think it's funny when he attacks, um, military heroes. Uh, especially after they have passed away, um, you know, I can go through my whole list. It, it's not funny, and um, it's something that the American people should be really offended by and really worried about. Um, and it really, it, it, when the the president the president of the United States, I mean, just picture it: w- is he sitting up in bed with his covers up to his waist, watching Fox News or something, with his his phone in his hand and his two you know, punchy little thumbs, but going to you know, tapping away. And like I'm just picturing what is, what <laughs> yeah. does it mean with the president of the United States yeah. is, is tweeting at me at one o'clock yeah. in the morning? It's like, I mean, the
0: thing that at that moment, but, but run, yeah,
1: yeah, it's just so revealing of his yeah. mental instability.
0: Yeah, he is not, not that,
1: a stable guy.
0: But but that the thing that is keeping him awake at night is not the pandemic that is right. ravaging the country, but actually the fact that he saw an ad that was unflattering that he mm-hmm. that that resonated with the whole with, with millions of americans as true and his reflex was to lash out and attack the lincoln project people who were right. standing up to yeah right so he wasn't, him he, he wasn't he yeah.
1: wasn't he wasn't in bed reading a brief on the best response to the global pandemic um he was not you know meeting with some of his folks about the um the threat that vladimir putin and russia uh, um um pose to free and fair elections in america um he wasn't worried about the trade war uh with china that he is losing um you know that we can go through the list yeah. he wasn't yeah. sitting there going okay let's see um south korea figured out how to How to how to get You know how to beat this this virus. What did they do that we can do? He was you know know, let's we can go through the list of the hundreds of ways that the president of the United States (laughs) could have been using his time at one o'clock in the morning if he wasn't asleep, and it was none of them. It was a petty, adolescent, weak-minded personal grievance that he was concerned about.
0: I want to talk a little bit about people with conservative values like yourself and how you might advise American voters who are like you and, uh, and don't want to let go of those conservative values and are struggling to reconcile that with, with voting for Donald Trump or not voting with for Donald Trump this year. Um, you said uh, previously, I think, um, uh, to the New Hampshire Journal, I haven't moved from my conservative principles. I'm still pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, pro-small government, and Trump isn't really any of those things. There are people listening right now who are genuinely on the fence. Right. And, and I asked Steve Schmidt this question. He said, I'm probably not the right guy. Maybe you're the right hmm. person to, to, um. to speak to that.
1: Uh, Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt is a really smart guy, and I, yeah. I, as you know, after being at the Cooper Union event with Lincoln Project, nobody wants to go on after. after
0: Steve <laughs> True, <laughs> you are in the hot that seat is not now. Not cool. <laughs> yeah, but there, but, um, but genu- yeah, there are I, people listening who are genuinely right. wondering what to do, and well, they've never had to face this choice, this kind of choice before.
1: And and so I, I have you know several thoughts about that. The first is, I totally get that you are on the fence. I totally get that. I spent ten years building the Republican party and getting Republicans elected and raising money for re- to, for Republicans and, um, you know, running a, a, a field operation and, and building a party around getting Republicans elected. Um, and never in my life, have I ever voted for a Democrat as of this moment in my life? Um, obviously on in November of 2020, I'll be voting for a Democrat. So the fact that you're on the fence and you're, and you're hesitant, you're confused, Of course you are. I totally understand that. If your hesitance is based in the idea that you are a conservative and you, how can I possibly vote for Joe Biden? If I'm a conservative, Um, I would, I would think a little bit about what conservatism really is. Conservatism is not racist. It is not judgmental of people based on the color of their skin um, their sexual orientation, um, their gender, their financial um, circumstances, the level of their education, whether or not they have served in the military, um, whether or not they like you. You know, think think about you, you when you compare Donald Trump as a human being to conservatism as a philosophy, there is no overlap. There's no overlap. Mm. So, you know, and let's take life as as an issue, for, as, an, as an example. But I'm pro-life. How can I vote for Joe Biden? I'm pro-life. Well, what does pro-life mean to you? Pro-life is not just about being opposed to women having an abortion. Pro-life is, means that you believe that life is inherently valuable. So that must also mean that you believe that elderly people who are living in assisted living facilities should not be dying of a pandemic that only exists in our country in the, to the in the destructive nature that it does because Donald Trump does not care about elderly people living in an assisted living facility. He only cares about what will make him look more electable. If you are pro-life, then you cannot possibly believe That putting children who were brought to America by their parents completely out of their own control into cages and take them away from their parents and to this day, many of them not be reunited with their parents. Mm -hmm. If you are pro-life, you cannot possibly believe that under any circumstance, children belong in cages. And it doesn't matter if somebody else did it before w- or if somebody else did it, but not as much or worse or anything. it doesn't, that is not pro-life. So I think that when people who are are looking at this election saying, God, but I'm a conservative, I've never voted for a Democrat before. You need to think about each of those issues one at a time. And, and say, wait, ex- anybody, I defy you to give me an example of where Donald Trump has ever expressed or acted in a manner that shows, um, shows value for life that shows that he finds your life in some way sacred. He doesn't. So he could, and, and, and the same would be true. If you looked, you know, uh, he's going to drain the swamp. Donald Trump is the biggest swamp monster in the history of our country. Um, he was, you know, uh, limited government no he has grown government and wants to get more uh, into your into your personal life than ever before uh, equal rights donald trump's administration went to the supreme court to fight against equal rights for all americans well, what about the constitution and the bill of rights donald trump has fought against your right not the press, not the big mean media that he's, you know, uh, that he, that he has convinced you is your enemy. He has fought against your right to free speech every day that he uh, attacks on social media or the press or anything else. He's trying to silence individual Americans. So you're a conservative. So am I. I get it. Donald Trump is not a conservative. And nothing that he's doing is going to make it easier for anybody in the future to make the argument for
0: conservatism. It is exactly the opposite. You mentioned the pandemic and elderly people who have been struggling not just to tease apart misinformation from truth throughout this catastrophe, but also. Access to testing, access to medical care, and you have your own story uh, dealing with this, caring for elderly parents. And would you be willing to share a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Um. And and you know there are two things in particular that happened that really, um, that that I feel like really kind of highlights what so many, like it is, you know, it's my story, but it's, it's, it's millions of Americans' story. And it's only one piece of how this pandemic has really hurt individual human beings. You know, my parents are both elderly um, and they spend a couple of months every winter in Florida. And for the past several years, my husband and I go with them. We both work from home and my parents need family. You know, we're in a condition, they, they need family near them. And so this year when we were down there, we happened to be in Florida when this whole thing hit and the lockdown started, so we were locked down with my eighty-three and eighty-five-year-old mom and dad, and um, very a, a lot of that was a joyful experience for us. You know, we we choose to be in Florida with them in the wintertime to to help them and to take care of them. Um, but my mom is was very very frail and has been for a couple of years now, um, and early on in all of this, developed some sort of a respiratory um infection. And naturally, since, you know, a, a week before the shutdown, mom and I had been in Disney World together, you know, pushing her through the crowds in her wheelchair. Um, and so a, a week or two into it, she developed a respiratory um, disease of some sort. And I just wanted to take her to her regular PCP in Florida to find out, you know, what's wrong. My mom's having progressive, you know, progressively getting harder for her to breathe. She's got, you know, all these symptoms. Um and, and over the course of three days, I spoke to her doctor's office repeatedly. Um, and I could not bring my sick mother to the doctor because they were worried she might be sick. You know, <laughs> think about that. Um they said it sounds her symptoms sound too much like COVID, so we can't have her in the office. In order they and, they and so they said, but so the best thing is if she gets really sick, if she gets to where she can't breathe, then bring her to the emergency room. But be careful about bringing her into the emergency room because she could catch COVID there if she doesn't already have it. It was insane. And I finally as my mom, over the course of a few days, got sicker and sicker, I finally realized the only way I'm going to get her treatment is if I can prove that she doesn't have the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So I got online for the first drive-through test that they had near where my parents live, got up to our turn, lied to them and said, yes, the doctor told us to come and get, you know, tested. And so they tested my mom. By the time it took, I believe, 15 or 17 days to get the results. So by the time we got the results and knew she didn't have the coronavirus, uh, we were already past the critical part. But the next day we're at home um testing her oxygen level because she's slumped over in her chair she's barely conscious and it shows us something in the low 80s which it's anything under 90 is critical supposedly so i've got the ambulance on the way the emts in the living room loading my poor mom who doesn't know what's going on onto this stretcher uh we follow them to the emergency room They won't let any of us go in near my mom. I had to fight. And and the whole time I'm sitting there saying she has dementia. She doesn't know where she is. She cannot speak for herself. I mean, it was just, I had to fight to get back there with her. And the first thing the doctor, with all due respect, the idiot doctor said to me is, well, we, you know, she's been back here for 45 minutes, you know, looking for you. Where have you been? We can't, you know, we, we don't even know why she's here. Like I've been outside in your lobby trying to fight to get in here. It was insane. It was completely insane. My it turned out my mom had acute bronchitis and recovered. Thank God.
0: Um, All the while, Donald Trump was telling oh, Americans, yes. if you, anybody who wants a test can get a test, no problem.
1: Anyone Fast forward wha- to where yes. we are
0: today, and right. he's in the process of Shutting Defunding down funding tests. for all tests all mm-hmm. around the country, effective right. June 30th.
1: Exactly. Yeah. If you want a test, you can get a test. Tests are everywhere. No problem yeah. with tests. And now he wants to defund tests, which by the way, and, and that's the thing for people to understand, when I, you know, back to what I said earlier, you got to look at this and just be, be clear with yourself. Um, the purpose for shutting down tests is so that voters who are thinking about whether or not they want to vote for Donald Trump won't keep hearing how many people in America have actually caught the coronavirus.
0: Yeah. That's the purpose. Yeah. So it's all about the numbers for him. The,
1: um, we get to a point where it's clear the lockdown is going to continue mm-hmm. much longer than anybody anticipated. Um, flights are getting canceled nobody can travel. My parents live in upstate New York. Um, Just being in lockdown made my mother worse. She was disconnected from the outside world. Her dementia was getting worse. She clearly was not feeling well. And we reached a point as a family where we decided we need to get them home. Uh, We booked flights. They got canceled. We booked another flight. It got canceled. My husband and I ended up renting an RV, scrubbing it down, Putting my parents in it and driving twelve hundred miles through the night to get mm. them home, and I am so grateful now in retrospect that I did that, because about a month after we got home, my mom passed away, and um, had that happened while we were in Florida away f- away from family and away yeah. from the familiar, um, you know, places and home and friends and everything, I don't know how how my dad would have survived it. But the experience of going through um, a death and a funeral and the mourning while under the coronavirus was awful. You could not have a public funeral mass. My mother and father are lifelong Catholics. Their faith um, is the fuel for their you know their lives. And um, the idea that we couldn't have their friends gather in a church, was really awful for my dad. And he didn't understand. He just did not understand the degree to which all of this was impacting everything. Um, you could not have a, um, you could not have a, a wake you couldn't in where we were, you know, at that point, you can only have 20 people in the building at a time at a funeral home. And, um, and as a family, we overcame it, you know, we all got to get our our family, our immediate family uh, is nine children, um, seven sp- uh, eight spouses, and thirty seven wow. grandchildren. Wow. So we're we're a little bit of a crowd. We got together in Dad's backyard, and um, we had a mass for my mom. And we all went to the funeral home and went in in small groups, you know, little by little. And we kind of tailgated in the parking lot together in between as we were, as we were waiting our turn to go inside. We made it work, you know, because we're a family. We came together and we took care of each other. But the more I think back on that experience, the more I think about this is this is just a little thing in the big picture of how coronavirus has caused loss and heartache and burden for millions of Americans. People, in, in the the end of my mom's life, she was in the hospital for a week. We had to fight to get permission for one of us to be in the hospital with her that whole time because she cannot speak for herself. And the longer she is alone and away from her family, the worse that um, her condition got and the more frightened and and out of control she would become. Like we had to fight to be able to be there next to her. So I think about all the family, all the people in our country whose loved ones died alone in a hospital, whose loved ones right now cannot get the cancer care treatment they need or the get into, um, you know, trials, experimental trials because the coronavirus has limited access to that. And and, and you can go through the list. You you think, like you think about 120,000 American lives lost to this disease in just a few months and your heart just aches. And then you go beyond, you know, beyond that, and realize the degree to which it is really um, hurting people. I- even beyond that, every day, minute by minute, it is not being, it is not politicizing a tragedy to say Donald Trump is responsible for the heartache and the burden and the loss that the American people are feeling right now. It was his weakness, his incompetence and his narcissism that led him to make the decisions that has turned this into something that is much bigger and much heavier than it ever had to be for our country. Donald Trump is responsible for that. That's not being political.
0: That's being honest. If you had five minutes alone in a room with Donald Trump, what would you say to him?
1: I have thought about that. You asked me that a couple of days ago, and I thought about that. And I think that the honest answer at this point in my life is that I would decline the opportunity. I've had the chance to talk to Donald Trump a few times during the election when I was chairman. And the one time when it was just the two of us one on one by phone, um, the conversation went for two minutes and seven seconds and he never stopped speaking. He called because I had been speaking out against him. One of his people said, you need to call and and make nice with this chairman. So she stops criticizing you. And, um, you know, we connected on the phone and, um, at that time, I just wanted to talk to him about how the way he was campaigning was making it harder for Senator Kelly Ayotte um, to win re-election to the Senate, and that I thought there was a better path for both of them, and um, I spent and my husband can attest to this. He was sitting right next to me. I spent the entire two minutes and seven seconds saying, "But Kelly, uh, Senator A, uh, uh, but uh, he, I'm not kidding. He did not stop speaking. He didn't know. I'm, I'm sure that he didn't even bother registering in his head." who he was talking to. He spent two minutes and seven seconds talking about the polls, how great he was doing in the polls. Look at me in the polls. I'm great. We're going to win. We're in poll, poll, all about the polls. Um, and when he finally got to the end and I, and I thought, okay, this is my chance. And I started to jump in. He said, so you call me anytime you need something. You call me, you have my number. And, and, and like essentially hung up. So there is Donald oh. Trump does not, Donald Trump is not capable of hearing Anything I have to say to him. Would I like to tell him the story about my mom? Absolutely. If I thought it would impact the way that he was thinking or acting or, you know, leading, Um, you know, would I like to share with him, you know, ideas that I have or thoughts that I have about a better way to to preserve America, my feelings about, um, you know, how great our country is and, and equality and opportunity and service? Sure. But why, why at this point, would I waste five minutes of my time sitting in front of the weakest, most dangerous, most divisive person we've ever had in the white house? He does not care. He doesn't want to hear from me. He would not listen to me if I was there. And that, I don't mean that as me like, Oh, Jennifer Horn, you should listen to me. That's me as in every single American citizen. He does not care. If you're not there telling him, one, that he's great, or two, this is how you win, he does not care. I think that's
0: the answer to, to what would I say to Donald Trump. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.